We are in a, a new study. This, I believe, is week three of our sermon series, and it is called Epic. And it is very simply this. It is epic because it is big, and it is grand, and it is awesome. It is the best and greatest story ever told, the Bible is. But what we're looking at is we are looking at the essential theology. Actually, we're going to explore essential theology as revealed in the greatest story ever told. So we're going to look at the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but we're going to look at it right, in sort of a systematic way, in a way that flows naturally by looking at a bunch of different areas of theology. Remember, theology is just a big word that means the study of God. It means God, word, the study of God's word. And so we have all these other parts of theology that we will look at. Um, And this is basically just saying, we want to know who God is, we want to study him. That's what theology is. And so this idea of systematic theology is a way to say, look, the Bible tells a story, and there's so many different elements involved, we need to know what the whole Bible says on any given subject. And so, of course, in our first of the series, we looked at the Bible itself, bibliology. That's what it's called. It's a study of the Bible itself. We looked at where do we get the Bible from? Why do we have 66 books and not 67? What does it mean that it's inspired, that it's inerrant? We looked at that because if we are going to tell a story, then we need to know where the story comes from. Does that make sense? And so that's what we did. So that was our first week. And then last week we looked at theology proper or paterology, which is a fancy word for the study of God the Father, right? And so that's kind of how systematic theology looks is that you break it down and saying we're going to look at God the Father separately, individual, from God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and and, and everything else to see what the whole Bible says about him and how does that fit into our story. And so, of course, we looked at the Bible, and then we met our very first and most important character, and that is God the Father. And so now that we know where the story comes from, before we even start telling the whole story, we have to be introduced to some of these main characters in our story, right? And so, of course, we started with God the Father. We looked at all of his attributes. Well, not all of them, but many of them. We looked at how God is omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent, right? And um, how he's all-powerful, all-knowing. He's, he's everywhere at all times in his whole being. Because we have to know who God is, right? But first we had to see the Bible, where we get that from. Because we don't just make up who God is in our head, right? We can't do that or kind of piece together who we think he should be. Because the Bible is his revealed word. He reveals to us who he is. So therefore, we need to listen. That's where we get who he is. Okay, that's what we find out. And so we did that. And now, if, um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you would assume that the next character in line would be God the Son. We looked at God the Father, and then you would think today would be God the Son. But you would be wrong. Because what we're going to do is, we're going to put it a little out of order, but you'll see how it makes sense. We're going to leave the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, okay, for in a few weeks, we're going to talk about him on that Sunday right before Christmas. That's not like a good idea? Because, of course, we're going to see what it means that God became incarnate or take on flesh, the incarnation. That's the, the whole, of course, uh, reason for the season, the birth of Jesus Christ, God, um, God in the flesh. And so we will talk about him then. It also makes sense in the whole flow, and you'll see. So where does that leave us? If we talked about God being a triune God... Well, God the Father, God the Son, we'll look at him later. Then God, the Holy Spirit. So we're going to look at the Holy Spirit today. 
And I believe that he is probably the most misunderstood, maybe the most forgotten, maybe the most um, uh, maligned of the Trinity, of the Godhead, God the Holy Spirit. So today we're going to look at two very simple things and break it down. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Does that make sense? I mean, if we're introducing characters to any story, we want to know, okay, who is this person? Tell us about him. And then what does he do? What part does he play in the story? Specifically for us, church, the application part, the so what, what does it mean to us today, is what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of a Christian? Why is he important to understand and to know? And why is it important to understand what he does? Now, one of the main um, metaphors used in Scripture for the Holy Spirit is wind. You know, we often see the Holy Spirit in the Old and the New Testament described as wind, but also as fire and as water. Can you get a picture of the Holy Spirit already? If the Bible talks about him as wind and as um, fire and as water, okay, he's pretty elemental and essential, right, to the whole story of God and, of course, also to us. But specifically today, we want to see what that means, that he is called wind in a sense. See, in the Old Testament, because we see the Holy Spirit in the Old and the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew, the main word for spirit is ruach, right? I won't even spell it for you. You can just say, I guess, something in your throat, ruach. But what that word means, it means breath, it means wind, it means air, it means spirit. But isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit is described as wind and air and breath? But in the New Testament, which is written predominantly in Greek, the Greek word that's equivalent is pneuma. Pneuma. Pneuma means wind or breath or air or spirit. So that's where we get this this, uh, part of the theology, the study of theology, studying the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. Now, it sounds like, like a specialization for a doctor, right? Oh, he's a specialist in pneumatology. I, I got to go to the pneumatologist, you know. Well, kind of as Christians, we all do. We need to go to the pneumatologist every day, right? But so pneuma, just where so you know that, that fancy word comes from, means spirit. It's a study of the Holy Spirit. That's what pneumatology simply is. So today we'll look at who he is and what he does. Now, last night, I don't know about you, but um, it was pretty windy where I was, and it was windy, right? It was so windy that it woke up my dog. And my dog is older and kind of jittery to begin with. She does not like the wind. She hates it, especially during the winter, uh, during the summer when we have the windows open. And the wind blows the curtain. It freaks her out. Like, what a great guard dog. She's just sitting there, and the little curtain just gently blows. And she gets all nervous. And so she doesn't like that. She's very skittish, you know. And so last night... Um, the wind woke her up, and then, of course, she decided to wake me up. She's like, hey, there's wind, there's wind. So I was up at 4, and then I was up at 5, and then I usually get up at 6 anyway. So I was up so pretty early because the wind was blowing, and it was scaring her. And, you know, but the wind is certainly is important, isn't it? Now, I, I learned pretty quickly, and my wife and I learned that during the summer, when we got, want to go to the beach, we try to look at the wind forecast, the wind report. Because, you know, every once in a while we would go and there'd be these biting horse flies, right? You see the biting flies? 
But then we learn, somebody told us, it's usually when it's a westerly wind, when it's coming off the land, it brings the flies. But if the wind is coming off the ocean, the easterly, then you don't have those flies. So now we want to look because when we go, we, of course, don't want to be bitten by those flies. So the wind makes a difference, doesn't it? The wind makes a big difference. But think about the wind for a second. Can you see the wind? Well, how do you know it's there? You can feel it. You can see what it does, right? I mean, somebody says, wow, look at that wind. You're not actually looking at the wind. Can you see air moving? No, but you see what it does. See, and and we're going to look at a whole bunch of scripture today that kind of shows us that. I'm looking outside. I'm looking at all the, boy, the, the leaves are blowing today, right? And they're falling right on your yard. So that you can go home, that's what you got to do this afternoon, right? So the wind is important, but just think about it. If the Holy Spirit is described as wind or, or breath, okay, or air, how important is air and breath to our daily lives? I'd say pretty important, right? I'd say if we all just kind of took a deep breath and held it in, we would all pass out, wouldn't we? But I mean, you need to have breath in your lungs to live, don't you? You need to have air. Now, we are surrounded by air, but if we don't breathe, we won't live. Just think about that as an example of us in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. There is air all around us. It is available to us 24-7. But in order for us to take full advantage of the benefit of that air, we simply need to breathe in and breathe out. And breathe in and breathe out and do that over and over and over again. Something we don't even think about, but yet we do it. But the Bible says that is what the Holy Spirit is like in the life of a believer. We don't see him. He is invisible. He shares all of the same attributes of God because he is God. We'll see that in a second. But we just have to remember that if nothing else, we breathe in and we breathe out. We need the air. We cannot live the Christian life without the person of the Holy Spirit within us. Okay, we'll see that in a second. So what we're going to do is simply this. We're going to look at who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do, okay, with our remaining time together, and then we'll wrap it up with some very practical application, okay? So let's look at this as our study of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? First of all, we're going to see the Holy Spirit is a person, okay, The Spirit is not just some mystical force. The Holy Spirit is a person. That's why we say that he is part of the Godhead, part of the Trinity. He is God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He has personal attributes just like the Father and the Son. Last last week we looked at the attributes of God. Does it not make sense that if he is equally God then he has all those same attributes. So he is described as a person. He has intelligence, 1 Corinthians 2. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. That's a great summary 
uh, passage for what the Holy Spirit does, but also gives us a great insight into who he is. He is a person because he, he teaches and he searches. He does things that a person with personality does. I won't give you the, all the verses, but we also see that the Holy Spirit is active. In John 16, uh, 8 and 13 shows that the Holy Spirit guides and convicts us. In Acts 8, the Holy Spirit performs miracles. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. You kind of see what we're building here? That he is a person. How about other personality traits? Acts 5, the Holy Spirit can be lied to. Acts 7, he can be resisted. Ephesians 4, he can be grieved. In Matthew 12, he can be blasphemed. All of those aspects of the Holy Spirit point to the fact that he is a person. Does that make sense? So it's the first part of discovering who the Holy Spirit is. He is a person. He has these attributes just as God the Father does. So he is a person. He is also God. The Holy Spirit is God. Now there have been many heresies throughout church history that have infiltrated the church at different points in time to say that the Holy Spirit is not God. But then you are denying the Trinity, which is one of the tenets of Orthodox Christianity. So it's important that we understand who the Holy Spirit is. See, in Matthew 28, 19, right, part of the Great Commission, the Holy Spirit is associated with the other persons of the Godhead. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is included in that Godhead. So he certainly is God. We also see it, it's not up there. You remember when Jesus was baptized and it said, the Father sent the Spirit upon the Son. You had all three right in that same picture, in that same event. The Father sending the Spirit to descend upon the Son in whom he was well pleased. The Holy Spirit shares attributes of God, like we saw last week. 1 Corinthians 2, the Holy Spirit is omniscient. If you want to write these down in your, in your notebook, you can look them up later. Psalm 139 says the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, meaning is always all... Uh, Everywhere, all the time. Job 33, the Holy Spirit is omnipotent, all-powerful, gives, gives us power. In Genesis 1-2, the Holy Spirit was there as part of creation. The Holy said the Spirit hovering over. Remember that? So we see the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, the New Testament. He is a person, and he is God. Right? Now, the Holy Spirit is the same Holy Spirit in the Old and the New, of course. He's always been the same. But he has a little bit different um, role and responsibility in the Old Testament. So we see over a hundred times the Holy Spirit is referenced in some form or another in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, he has a new and special role that God the Father gave him in this age. This church age, this age of grace that we are now in, not no longer under the law or in the Old Testament, we now occupy this part of the story in the New Testament. And I'll get to that more later in our series when we do a whole message on the study of the church, ecclesiology. It's a fancy word. Ekklesia is the Greek word which means called out ones. Did you know that church, that we are called out? That we are called out to be separated from this world, special and holy and anointed, it says we are, and given as believers the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're looking at today.
So that's a quick overview of who he is. Now let's focus the rest of our time on what does he do. I think that's the, the big question for us. Like, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me? And I, you know, every day I live as a Christian, what do I do with the Holy Spirit? What is he doing in me? What does he want to do? How do I, how do I get him to do what, what I want him to do or what he should want to do, right? What does that look like? So first of all, we know that the Holy Spirit, you know, see, there's no, I won't give any verses today for that, but the Holy Spirit worked in Jesus' life. He anointed Jesus. He filled Jesus. He empowered Jesus. So you see that right off the bat. We'll talk about that more when we, looked at, when we look at Jesus around Christmas time. But the Holy Spirit ministered to Jesus, anointed him and filled him and empowered him. And then, of course, Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit, right? But most significantly, what does the Holy Spirit do for the believer, the believer in the Lord Jesus? He indwells us and empowers us. Let's remember that. The Holy Spirit indwells and empowers. Look at what it says in Acts 2, okay? This is when the Holy Spirit... Uh, came upon believers, this is Acts 2, this is what we call the day of Pentecost, right? It was a Jewish feast, a Jewish festival, so that's what was happening. That's why people, um, believe, uh, Jewish people from all different nations had gathered in Jerusalem for this feast of Pentecost, and they were all there, and here's what happened in Acts 2. We see the giving of the Holy Spirit to believers, to his church, and here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, meaning the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. See that? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire, there's the fire reference, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, that is languages, known languages. They began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you should mark that down and look in Acts 2 and see further what that looked like. And people claimed that they were drunk because they were sort of being controlled in a different way. And later on, uh, Paul tells us and Jesus tells us not to be drunk with wine but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. He actually makes that reference going back to that time. But Acts 2 is where you see the Holy Spirit comes on the scene in the New Testament, and he is um, filling. We're going to see he baptizes uh, the the believers, the new believers, are baptized in the Holy Spirit and indwelt. So let's look at that first, okay? So what does the Holy Spirit do in the life of the believer? And we saw this beginning in uh, Acts 2. He indwells all believers. Now, what does that mean in, in dwell? We don't really use that word a lot. It means simply this, church. At that moment of salvation, when you believe in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation, because Scripture says over and over, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's how you receive the free gift of salvation from God. He offers it. You receive it by believing. I've said this many times. What happens when we believe? Really, two main things are happening. We are, we are accepting the truth about who God is, that he is, that who Jesus is. He is God. And what he was going to do on the cross for us, that he did that. He died and rose again. We are accepting that as true facts. But then it's not just sitting there. We are also then trusting in that truth 
for our eternal security, that we put our faith and trust in Jesus for our eternal salvation. That's what happens when we believe. So at that moment that you believe, the Word of God tells us that the Holy Spirit indwells you. Not months later, and it doesn't happen over and over again. It's one time that he indwells you. So if you're sitting here and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, God himself, inside of you. We're going to see how this, this builds and plays out. And we can say amen to that. And you're going to see why we're going to say amen. I think later you'll, you'll say amen again, okay? And so he indwells all believers. This is super important. I'm going to give you th- three or four verses. The rest of these things that he does will be probably just one verse each. John 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Okay, This was happening in John 7. They had not received him yet. Jesus had not died yet, okay, and left him. But he is saying that this is what's going to happen. That those who believed in him were to receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Makes sense, right? So Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. For all believers will receive the Holy Spirit. It says all, okay, those whom believe in believe. All of them. Romans 8. You, however, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So it's showing in an opposite way. So if you belong to Christ because you have believed, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation, you do not have the Holy Spirit within you. But that moment of salvation... When you make that decision to receive by faith and faith alone, you immediately receive the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt. Okay? Acts 11. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed, see that, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Again, saying that when we believed, we received the Holy Spirit. It also mentions baptism, which we'll look at in a second. And I don't think, I'm not sure if I have this up, but John 14 says it's forever. I will ask the Father, he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. So we have the Holy Spirit forever. You don't lose the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, there was evidence, again, the Holy Spirit played a little bit different role There were times when the Holy Spirit was given to somebody but then taken away. It was for a different time and a different purpose. But under the new covenant, the covenant of grace, to the New Testament, we see that once a believer receives the Holy Spirit, you are indwelt forever with the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, uh, that's that. Baptizes. So, 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... In all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. It's what we also see in Acts 2. 
at Pentecost. It said they were baptized. So here's the idea behind that, church. In theological terms, what happened the day of Pentecost? What happens when you believe by faith, when you receive that gift of salvation by faith? The Holy Spirit indwells you, and you are baptized. The same thing, okay? Happens, it's kind of like different modes of the same thing, but it all happens at once at that moment. You don't have to keep being baptized. There is not a second or third baptism of the Holy Spirit. The Bible does not teach that. It says at once we are indwelt and baptized by the Holy Spirit. So what is that specific thing about baptized? We know the indwelling means he comes within us to never leave. And then we're going to see what that means, what he does in our life. But the baptism is the way that we are then united with Christ and with each other. Don't we have when somebody is a new believer, we baptize them in water by immersion. We baptize them because that is a signal of what has happened. It's an outward public sign of what's already happened inside. Okay, That they have been made new through Christ. And we'll see that again. Been given the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so we are baptized and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that is once, and those, both of those things happen at that moment that you believe. Now, how about filling? The Holy Spirit fills us. And we're going to end with more of this in a few minutes. But Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not get drunk with wine, the Apostle Paul says, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Just kind of file that for a few minutes why would Paul, just an open-ended question for now, why would Paul juxtapose being drunk and being filled with the Holy Spirit? Think about that. Think about what happens if somebody gets drunk. And why would Paul use that as an example of saying, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit? Why would he say one and say, don't do that, do the other? Just think about that. We'll come back to that. So the Holy Spirit fills. He, he, he indwells and baptizes. He fills us. That's a continual feel, uh, filling. We'll show that in a moment. The, the Holy Spirit also seals us. I love this. 2 Corinthians 5. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Like a down payment. <laughs> Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit until he returns for us. Because didn't Jesus ascend after the 40 days back to the Father? And he said, don't worry, you can't come with me, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you a great comforter, the helper, the counselor, the Holy Spirit. So you won't be alone until I return. See, when he returns, we won't need the Holy Spirit within us because we will be with him. See? So he gives us the Holy Spirit until he comes back, and he has given us the Holy Spirit within us, never, never to leave us as a, as a seal, as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That happened at that moment, you believed too. You were sealed. Do you remember, like, you've probably watched movies and read stories way back when you know, when there was kings and castles and, and all that. And how would a, a king would make a proclamation and he would write it on a parchment and roll it up and give it to somebody to deliver it across the kingdom. Well, he would seal it, right? Usually he'd put some wax, melted wax, and he would take his ring that had the seal of the king and he would press upon it and it would seal the pages together, kind of like today when we kind of lick an envelope and we seal it, not to be opened, Right? until the person you were sending it to receives it. 
But the idea was to keep it closed and sealed until the day it should be opened. Well, the Holy Spirit is our guarantee and our seal until Christ returns for us. Isn't that awesome? They made that down payment and a guarantee and a seal for us. So a seal gives that impression that, that, that nothing can break that open except the king himself, the one who is coming back for us, see? Because it's, it, it's his impression upon us. And that's what he sees. That's what the Father sees. So he seals us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. This is a fun one. I'm not going to skip it. But this is what he does. John 16. See, the Holy Spirit applies the truth of God's word to our lives for us to respond to. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. This is Jesus talking. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus said it's better that he ascends back to the Father so he can give us the Holy Spirit. He says, but if I go, then I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, Because the ruler of this world is judged, meaning Satan, the ruler of this world, will be judged. So, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin, convicts the world, convicts us as believers. When we are sinning, that still small voice, we might call it our conscience, right? It's the Holy Spirit within us as believers convicting us. The Holy Spirit also reveals God's love, Romans 5. Hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts Through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. He helps us pray, Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, it doesn't mean we groan when we don't know what to pray for. It's it's not mumbling and groaning. It says that the Holy Spirit will intercede for us. If you come before God and you're just still, you don't even know what words to say. It says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us on our behalf before the Father. And says, Father, this is what this person needs right now. Isn't that beautiful? That is part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. The Holy Spirit illuminates truth. John 16. When the Spirit of truth comes... He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. See, the Holy Spirit always points us to Jesus, but the Holy Spirit illuminates truth. When we read the Word of God as a believer, the Holy Spirit, now listen, The Holy Spirit is at work helping us to understand. What does that word illumination mean? It means to light up, right? You light it up. It's like the Holy Spirit is like our flashlight, and it's like we're reading the Word of God, and it feels dark and cloudy. I can't understand it. And the Holy Spirit will kind of shine a light on it to help illuminate it and say, yes, that's the truth. Now I understand what I am called to do, what God is calling me to do. And and see, and Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is only going to tell us What God wants us to know, what God has already shown us in his word. That's where we started our whole study with bibliology, the study of the Bible, because that is God's revealed word to us. 
A really important thing that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He illuminates the truth. So if you're ever struggling to understand what God is showing you in his word, you can pray, and we're going to see in a second as he fills us. Lord, illuminate through the Holy Spirit. Illuminate this truth that I might understand. Points to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus always. Not to himself, but to Jesus. John 15. But when the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, this is Jesus talking, the spirit of truth, there's truth again, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit in our lives is always trying to get us to think about Jesus. Isn't that good? That's what the Holy Spirit's doing, reminding us if we're going astray and our thoughts are going astray, the Holy Spirit is convicting us and saying, remember Jesus, get back to Jesus. Let's just keep it simple. It's all about, didn't we just sing earlier, Jesus, 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 That's okay, that's what the Holy Spirit does, reminds us of who it's all about, who changed our lives. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts. 1 Corinthians 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when we were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. So the Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. We don't have time to go into them, but here's uh, they're listed. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. Varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And if you want to read what those gifts of the Spirit are, it's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8 and following. Okay? Won't go into them now, but that is one of the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives, church, is he gives us spiritual gifts. And we are to use those spiritual gifts to edify each other, to build each other up. See, as a church, Jesus says he'll build his church. It's building us up, gives us the gifts of the Holy Spirit so that we can encourage each other and love one another, build each other up, so that we can go out and proclaim and be that salt and light. So he gives us the, the gift, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts, okay? And then uh, the Holy Spirit bears fruit, Galatians 5, 22, 23. Kind of like this idea of him harvesting his fruit in us. But the fruit of the Spirit, okay, now these, we had spiritual gifts he gives, but now this is separate, this is fruit, fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now, let's just make it clear. The one thing I can say about the fruit of the Spirit. Okay? It is not our fruit. Okay? It's not Keith's fruit. It's the Holy Spirit's fruit. I think that will help us. So what does that mean for us? That means the Holy Spirit's within you. He's indwelling you. He's going to work in you. He wants these things to be evident in your life. These are his fruits, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, but he wants to show them to the world through you. He wants to harvest these fruits in you. They're his fruits. But see, we have to let him. That's where we're getting to the filling part. He doesn't just automatically do these things. Are you always all of these things? Are you always expressing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? No. 
But those are the things, listen, but those are the things that the Holy Spirit wants to see in your life because they're his fruit. See, he's inside of you and he's saying, I got all this great fruit I want to show the world through you. Just let me do it. And that's what he's saying. It's his fruit, okay? So the results of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life, that's the fruit as we allow him. Two more quick things. So we can quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. You know that? 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the Spirit. What happens when you quench something? It's like when you quench a fire, you're pouring water on it, you're putting it out. So we can quench the Holy Spirit by not obeying. We can quench the Holy Spirit by not allowing him to do his thing. By You'll see in a minute, by, by not obeying the word of God, by not praying, by not being uh, obedient to what he has called us to do, we're going to quench the Holy Spirit. It's when we go to do our own thing and not let him lead us. We say, I got this Holy Spirit, I'll do it my way. Right? That is quenching. How about grieving the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 4, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for that day of redemption. How do we grieve or quench the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to read it all now. There's a lot. I put it up there. But just take a look. I put this in your notes. Look at Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. Ephesians 4, 17 to 32. You can skip ahead on that. Ephesians 4, okay, it tells us what it looks like to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. It's basically a whole list of sinful actions and thoughts and desires. Because the Holy Spirit is within us, wanting us to be righteous and holy and bear all this fruit. But when we are sinning and sinful thoughts and disobedient actions, we are quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit. So, where does that leave us? When it talks about being filled, back in that Ephesians passage, here's the key to that. When it says, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. See, do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what Paul is saying. When somebody is drunk, the the alcohol in what they drank is now controlling them, is changing the way they act. We understand that. Some of us from experience and others, we all know what that means. And so when alcohol does that, it sort of takes control, right? We say that it, 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 you know, it reduces our inhibitions, all that kind of stuff. So you, know, you are no longer in full control. So what Paul is saying is saying, don't be drunk with wine because you can see it. It's obvious. Didn't the, the people at Pentecost in Acts 2, they said, oh, these people are just drunk. Like, they're just acting crazy. Because they looked like they were controlled by something else. You can see the difference when alcohol does that. So, so Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but do this instead. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. So instead of, see what he's saying, the word picture? Instead of filling yourself with a different substance to control you, fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. But here's the key. That word when it says be filled, in the Greek language, this is important why I bring it up. Because it is a continual action. It's not be filled once. We are indwelt once and baptized once. Filled is something continual over and over again every day. It says, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what do you want to fill your life with? You want to fill your life with the things the world has to offer? Do you want to fill your life with the Holy Spirit? So here's the thing. The Holy Spirit indwells you. That's once. He is inside of you. 
But it makes sense, right? He doesn't automatically produce all that fruit, and you're not just perfectly holy at that moment of salvation. We are forgiven, but we're not yet perfect. So how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? That's the question of the day. How are we continually filled with the Holy Spirit? I'll give you four things. I think it's very simple. It's stuff you've heard before, but this is completely biblical. There's nothing mysterious about it. Boy, how am I filled with the Holy Spirit? That's a weird thing. Here is how the Bible describes being filled with the Holy Spirit. First, you surrender. Now, that's not a popular word, is it? You surrender, which means you submit and you yield. You give up control of yourself to God. Being filled with the Spirit starts with the loss of control. You yield and submit control of your life to Him. You kind of get out of the driver's seat and let Him drive, see? Some of us, we don't like to drive in the passenger seat. We have to always be the one in control driving, right? You know people like that. Maybe they're sitting next to you, you know. Mm -hmm. But we got to get out of the driver's seat of our own life And let him take control. Remember, you can't control the wind, but you can adjust the sails, can't you? I remember one year working at Harvey Cedars, they were giving free sailboat lessons, like sailing lessons. And and Claudia, my wife, was all excited about doing it. I had no interest whatsoever. I said, I like the boats with the motor, where you turn it, you know, and then it goes, and you just sit there. So what's the deal with a sailboat? There's a lot of work involved, isn't it? It's a lot of adjusting. See, now, are you controlling where the wind is going? No, what you're doing is you're controlling the sails, how high you put it, how big you let it out, right? So that's the idea. Because if the Holy Spirit is described as wind, we can't control it or know where he's going. And Jesus says that's like those born of the Spirit, John 6, right? In John three sixteen, he talks about it. And before that, Look at John 3. Read the whole thing. You'll get the whole picture. God so loved the world. What happens before that? He says, Nicodemus, you've got to be born, right? Be born of the Holy Spirit. Born of water and the Spirit. So the idea is this. We can't control the wind goes, but we can adjust the sails. But isn't that a constant thing? If you want to keep moving, you don't just put the sail up and go. You have to continually adjust it. See, that's a good metaphor, a picture, I think, of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You're constantly adjusting the sails because the wind is moving. You can't see the wind, but you put the sails up and you're adjusting it so that you can head in the direction, listen, head in the direction the wind is already going. See, if the wind is the Holy Spirit, he is on the move. We want to be on that same trajectory. So we put the sails up, we continually adjust them so we can head in the direction the wind is already going. And that's like being filled with the Holy Spirit. So it starts with surrendering. Uh, Galatians 2.20 just says this, it's not up there, but it says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What is Paul saying? He's like, I'm not my own anyway. Christ paid the price for me, and so it's not my life. I don't live my life anymore. I don't live it on my own. It's Christ who lives in me. So we surrender. Number two, we have to know his word. So we surrender and we read his word. You want to hear his voice? He speaks his word already. He's spoken his word. We have it in the Bible. Read it, and you'll know the word of God. 
He's given it to us already. You don't have to guess what he wants. It's written right there. God's word is said is living and active. Hebrews 4, it says that. And the Holy Spirit many times will use scriptures to guide us. That's his main way of working in our lives. He illuminates the truth. Listen, I'm almost done here. He reminds us of the word of God. So, so how are we filled with the Holy Spirit? We first surrender and give control over to him. And then we let him remind us of the scripture. So we have to read the word of God to know what God wants us to do. And when we forget, the Holy Spirit will bring it back to mind. Do you ever memorize a Bible verse and then years later, like you're just struggling or something's happening, you're talking to somebody, and all of a sudden you remember that verse. Well, I didn't even remember I memorized it. That's the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit it says he's not going to tell you something other than what God has already revealed to us in his word. He's not giving us new revelation. He's not adding books to the Bible. We talked about that. He is going to remind us of what God has already said in his word. So how are we filled with the Spirit? We surrender. We know his word. Meditating on his word is like building bigger and stronger sails. How's that? We'll keep that metaphor going. You've got to build bigger and stronger sails so you can move along uh, with the wind even better, right, as we know his word. Number three, we talk to God. That's called prayer, right? And Jesus says to the Holy Spirit, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, somebody who's sailing that boat has to continually adjust his sails. But it's a continual thing that you're reading and you're talking to God. It's not just Sunday morning, church. Sunday morning is not enough. Because you don't just adjust your sails once after Sunday morning and say, okay, I got, some good, I got some good stuff from today. You don't just adjust the sails once and then you're good for the whole week. You continually adjust the, the sails every day throughout the day. Always listening, being in conversation with God. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And finally, be obedient. That's really where it lands. If you're giving up control and you're reading the word of God that the Spirit's going to use, right, to remind you and convict you and encourage you, and you're praying and keeping that communication open with God and a dialogue with God, then it lands on obedience. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're obedient to what God has already told you to do. That's how you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Because when you're being obedient, you're not sinning, Right? So it's not just a matter of getting all the sin out of your life. It's being filled with the Holy Spirit so there's no more room for the sin. Amen? That's the idea. That's why he says be filled with the Holy Spirit so there's no more room. In John 3, in Titus 3, in Galatians 3, in this last slide, you know, I won't even read it, but John 3, look at this progression. I think this is a, a, the, the, best, the best place to, to land here. John 3 says um, that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, you have to be born again. So the Holy Spirit regenerates us. That's one of the main things that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer. When Jesus says, listen, be born again, that, that term born again means to be renewed, to be regenerated, to give new life. The Holy Spirit regenerates us. So... At the moment of salvation, follow me, church. I think it's going to make a lot of sense. If the Holy Spirit takes, uh, is the one that is regenerating us, the Father uses the Holy Spirit to give us that new life, okay? So Jesus says, 
You must be born of water and spirit to enter the kingdom of, of God. Okay? So you're born again, so you are spiritually renewed. Right? That's how we connect with God, through our spirit, right? Not our flesh, but our spirit. So you have a new spirit in him because you're born again. Then Titus 3 saves, says that he saved us not by works done in righteousness, but the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. Okay? So there it is again, Titus 3. We're born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So listen, we have a new life in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And then look at what it says in Galatians 3. Paul says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, we're born of the Spirit. We're to live by the Spirit. Doesn't that just make a whole lot of sense? That it, doesn't it make sense? If the Holy Spirit is the one that regenerates you and you have new spiritual life in him, then do we just say, thanks, Holy Spirit, thanks, God, for the new life. I got it from here. You know what Paul says? That's foolish. He says that's foolish thinking. To think that you say, yes, I believe, I believe, and I, re- I have received the Holy Spirit because I am now saved. Well, he says, if you've been given life by the Holy Spirit, then live each day of your life by the Holy Spirit. And that is what we say by saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. To live each day, right? Surrendering to him. Knowing his word that the Holy Spirit will use in your life. Praying, dialoguing with God to stay on the same page. Building those bigger sails. It all leads to obedience. It's nothing magical or mysterious. You obey the word of God. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. We love God, we obey him. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then, then we'll question less, what does God want me to do? And what does he want me to do in my life? Am I doing the right thing? If you are obeying God and his word, then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit each and every moment of each and every day. A continual thing. You are indwelt and baptized once, and you are filled as you obey the word of God. Let's stand and pray together. Father God, we thank you for our time. May we leave this place recognizing that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit within us. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, the spirit that gives us new life, that we can now walk in him. God, May we never forget that. May we never neglect the person of the Holy Spirit. For God, we recognize that if nothing else, we can't live the victorious Christian life that you want us to live. The life as free people, people of hope and freedom and peace, we can't live that without the Holy Spirit. And God, we know it. It makes sense, but it's in your word. It's the divine truth. So God, would you help us then to have the courage to surrender to have the commitment to read the word of God, to have that mind to be able to spend time with you in prayer and then to just be obedient to what you have already told us to do so that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus, for not leaving us or forsaking us. Thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit that you can be with us till the end of the age. And when you return, I will look forward to that. Until then, God, we will. Submit, surrender, and yield to you so we can be filled with your spirit, the great comforter and helper and counselor. Thank you, Father God, for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Go in peace.
Be filled with the Holy Spirit.